This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Doug Robinson, the Executive Director of the National Association of State CIOs, and Graham Finley, a partner with GuideHouse. Doug, Graham, thanks so much for taking the time and join me. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, Jason. Doug, it's great to see you again. It's been, I think, uh, l- at least 10 or 12 years since you and I have talked about this annual survey of, of state CIOs that NASIO puts out. And Graham, appreciate you jumping in here as well for uh, return engagement. Uh, and the most recent survey came out maybe a couple months ago. So let's just talk about that survey. Uh, what surprised you? What stood out to you? Get, get, let's go through some of those results. Uh, Doug, lead us off. Yes, thanks, Jason. Uh, well, this is, uh, we kind of termed this as our post-COVID uh, survey, trying to gauge the uh, uh, perspectives and get the voice of the state CIOs about their their priorities. Uh, uh, I would say overall, uh, no significant surprises. Uh, some readjustments of the priorities and the perspectives coming out uh, of a pandemic and looking at what uh, kind of their enterprise uh, vision is going to be. Uh, I think the one area that I, we can certainly talk a lot about, and I'm sure uh, Graham's got some comments, is that uh, through many of the of the topics of the of the ten major areas that we looked at, uh, we saw a a a strong theme, a thread of the discussion around workforce and around the challenges of uh, workforce acquisition. You know, the re- recruiting and retention impact of retirements and resignations, uh, the need to rescale. So, regardless of the topic, whether it was legacy modernization, uh, whether it was a discussion on kind of post pandemic priorities. Uh, workforce challenges seem to be that, and, and in some cases, uh, it, it, it appeared as uh, as the first or second challenge or impediment to things like digital services and other areas, which are very high priorities for the state CIOs. Uh, so uh, it, it it also the our other survey on cyber, which was released of uh, the same conference. Uh, in October, uh, demonstrated the same type of pattern. A lot of conversations around the challenges of crisis in the cybersecurity uh, workforce. And I think to just to follow up on that, um, it's interesting as we've asked on surveys over the last well, what is it, thirteen years now? I think we've been doing the survey. Um, funding has always been one of the primary constraints, and obviously people, you know, still have that as a concern. But this is possibly the first survey I can remember where capacity became as much a constraint as funding. So the ability to have the resources, and it can be, you know, state resources or even, you know, vendor resources as well, just the ability to deploy them, acquire and deploy them has become a as real inhibitor to the mission, more so in some cases than even having the money. Do you get a sense, and we'll open this up to either Doug or, or Graham on this, do you get a sense because of the pandemic, because of how we are changed in the way a lot of companies and organizations work, that 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 rose to the top. It was always there, maybe underlying these challenges, but cybersecurity or funding or legacy IT just became was was so all encompassing that the pandemic really woke up people to this understanding that the workforce is now one of their, if not their biggest challenge. What, what do you attribute to this change? Maybe uh, Doug to start and then Graham. It. it- 
It's it's probably has been highlighted to a degree, Jason, although we have done national surveys on the state IT workforce. Our first one we did was in 2007. So every five years, we were actually going back out to our market, to the state CIOs and and asking them a specific and comprehensive uh, survey uh, on on uh, on workforce challenges. Uh, they continue to have challenges, but it didn't get into the, the resource constraint and crisis mode. There was lots of conversations about, oh, we're going to have this great uh, retirement, the silver tsunami, which really never came. I think what's happened though is that the constraints of the pandemic it, it just exposed a, a number of these things, and I think the you know if you look at the data. Uh, a big part of that is, you know, where some of the challenges is about the the need to reskill the existing workforce and uh, the decline in, as Graham said, the, the decline in capacity, the decline in competency. Many of them said, well, you know, we have we have a decline in disciplines and capabilities to deliver things like enhanced citizen experience under digital services. And before, uh, probably number one or number two was we didn't have the funding to do that, so we're not pursuing it. That had dropped way down the list. So I think we're just seeing something that, as you said, perhaps has been there, but now has really been exposed for, you know, a variety of reasons. Part of that's retirement, part of that's resignations, part of that is introducing new technologies uh, into uh, the state because of the pandemic. And I think a, a good example is low code, no code. Uh, that was nascent in a lot of states and uh, uh, automation, robotic process automation, just automation in general, machine learning. Again, there were that those those were kind of nascent and, and relatively at a small adoption level pre-pandemic. And then we've just seen this big jump and the states just didn't have the skills to do that. So I think the it's, it's really exposed a, a number of things. And I think my final comment is that the the you know flexibility in the workforce and state government, those are those are phrases that would not be in the same sentence, right? They're oxymorons. Uh, and I think, you know, like many other government organizations, states did not provide flexibility in a variety of ways, whether it was the location or whether it was the, the hours of the, just something that states were not doing. They were fairly fixed. That has changed dramatically uh, because of the, the pandemic. It was, I think, a recognition that states you know, needed to move in a direction which provided a lot more flexibility uh, if they wanted to retain their existing workforce. So that's that. Those are things that are going to change, I think, on a on a more permanent basis. Yeah, I think one way to think about it is just a, a supply and demand equation, and you know the labor market in particular. I mean, especially if you look at the last twelve months, it's been just crazy in terms of demand for workers across all all sectors. You know, the public sector's struggling uh, equally with the private sector. Like everybody's trying to hire, and so you know that's obviously been a challenge, and the you know, the means that states have had to, you know, recruit and um, try and attract resources have always had to be a little different than the, the private sector because they can't compete on pay generally. So there are other aspects associated with, you know, the, the ways that states try are trying to attract. And that's something that, you know, Doug's looked at, you know, quite in depth over a number of years. I, the, the, the particular challenge that's occurred over the last couple of years because of COVID, and it's been interesting because it's been some unintended consequences, some of which have actually been positive in the end, but almost forcing the um, the delivery of flexible work arrangements, whether it be online work, you know, remote work, geographic location is another one, which I, I find particularly interesting that 
it had been a few years ago, if you were to look at, you know, state IT workforces, most people were co-located pretty much in the state capital because that's where the state agencies primarily were. All of a sudden, by necessity, people have, you know, gone remote, but it's also meant that uh, states can now hire in a much more geographically diverse. And so you, it's been an, almost an economic development story for some more rural parts of the state where now there are jobs available that perhaps they weren't previously. So that's been sort of a benefit. But I would say it's been outweighed just by the level of competition from particularly the private sector who are also offering at least that same level of flexibility. And now the flexibility is here. Nobody's wanting to give it back. Like there are very few you know, organizations that would people actually want to go back in the office five days a week. And so they're having to deal with you know, changes in work life balance and just the way they go about doing work. And Jason, if you look at the actual data, which I think is illustrative of this huge shift that has occurred, because we have this, it, it's great work of Graham, because we and I think we, we do a lot of longitudinal data. We're asking some questions on like CIO operating models that we asked in 2010 and 11. So even though we have a you know dramatic change in the cohort of our respondents of CIOs, we see this this this, pa- this pattern of, of of maturity and evolution. One thing we saw in the workforce question when we we asked. Uh, about what you know, what are the strategies and tactics that that the uh, CIO is using in in attracting you know, qualified IT professionals? Uh, generally, it's around you know pitching the public service, the public sector regardedness, the uh, uh, you know uh, promoting that activity for, in promoting the experience you'll get working in the state. And but what jumped up. 73% of them says were, said there were now expanding flexible and remote work. That wasn't even on the list in 2021 and 20. I mean, they, they, we, we go back to, I think it's 2019 and 2017. So flexible and remote work did not even appear in those two previous services. Every couple of years, we've seen, so we've seen that's a big shift and Graham's right. They, I don't see them, I don't see them going back. They're not going to be able to, uh, recruit and retain people if they go back to the old uh, model. And that's not surprising given what we've all learned from the pandemic. So I think, as you said, Doug, in the beginning, there's not a lot of surprises, but things that, that were reinforced, okay, that is still a thing and, and and the folks recognize it. Were CIOs from your experience over the previous years not excited about remote work or not supportive of remote work and telework? Or is it just a culture thing? They, it wasn't they were or weren't. They just – it was not part of the culture. Like in the federal government, you have Congress pushing telework to a certain extent and some agencies were better than others. In the states – and I know every, every state is different, so it's harder to say. But but what, what, what is your trend or what is your experience to say? Was this just something that just wasn't talked about? It was uh... – it, it, as opposed to just specifically for the state CI organization, it was an offering in a few states. Tennessee, for example, had several thousand employees working remotely. Uh, Washington State had people working remotely. However, it was it was an offering, and it wasn't you know widespread. <clears throat> and and you know although IT uh, certainly IT professionals took advantage of it, it was not like you said something that was found uh, universally across the states. In some states, it was specifically. Uh, uh, prohibited in a degree, they said you 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 must be in that you know in that state building, and so no, it wasn't. It was it was something that was being experimented with, uh, with a few states, but you know not not widespread. A, a lot of that had just had to do with the culture issues, and so that that's that you know we made a big shift there. 
The other big shift that I want to get to around workforce is around the reskilling of employees. And I think uh, uh, you both brought up this idea of new technologies, low-code, no-code, RPA, automation, and the like. Is that where you're seeing a lot of CIOs saying we need different skill sets that meet those new technologies? Or is it somewhere else, such as we're getting out of the data center, we need cloud architects, or cyber is always a big one, or we need people to manage the, the, the service providers in a different way. Any, any trends that, that appeared from the survey around what types of skills? So I can, I can start on that one, just almost going in a different direction in, in the sense that one of the areas that we've really seen over the last, I mean, it's been an evolution over the last decade, really, is this, you know, there's this concept of the CIO business model and a term we've been using around the CIO's broker, you know, and whether that's the right term, but the, this idea that the CIO is in many cases are not directly delivering services anymore. They are acting in some sense as a sourcer of services, whether those be from other entities within government or from increasingly from the private sector. And in many respects, the ability to manage vendor relationships and then the ability to manage customer relationships become just as, if not more important than the ability to manage technology. And and a lot of the reskilling, it's less about, you know, are you going from COBOL to, you know, some low code, no code solution? It's I'm going from a technology heavy role where I was really dealing with, you know, with IT. And now most of my job is dealing with people. And that's a different skill set altogether. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and you went through that litany, Jason, of all those, particularly cybersecurity um, positions. Uh, we're seeing uh, more states having to go to uh, manage services and using staff augmentation to backfill some of those cyber roles. Uh, some states have been successful in getting significantly large increases uh, in one area, and that's been cyber. And so they've been successful in getting money, but they they do have to uh, acquire the talent. And, you know, the competition is extreme, as, as Graham said, in the marketplace. So that's, you know, cloud architects, certainly, you know, all the states are, you know, aspire to have a bigger cybersecurity shop, uh, but they're just having to face reality and and backfill. Uh, with uh, contract folks and, and move to some of those. But, you know, the future is clearly pointed toward um, a, a, you know, kind of new operating model for CIOs and IT, which is much more uh, public-private, you know, collaboration to deliver uh, on some of these because they're they're moving out of the owner-operator model to a, to a different role. Doug Graham, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation. My guests here are Doug Robinson, the Executive Director of the National Association of State CIOs, and Graham Finley, a partner with GuideHouse. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Doug Robinson, the Executive Director of the National Association of State CIOs, and Graham Finley, a partner with GuideHouse. Today, we're talking about the annual NASIO survey of state CIOs. Doug, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought up this idea of owner-operator model because that's the next place I want to maybe talk to. This idea of enterprise portfolio management, this idea of op- optional services versus mandated services, that was another big area of the survey that it addressed, uh, whether it's around new products or services or shared services or a way to minimize r- risk and save money. Uh, it seems like there was a, a push towards mandated services in, in a lot of uh, state CIO agencies. 
what what did you find interesting about that part of the survey? What stood out to you when it talks about portfolio services and the and the like? Couple of things to to think about there. I think the um, one is to just recognize the enormous diversity of operating models within the states. So you've got some that are almost entirely centralized, where everybody who's involved in technology reports to the state CIO. And then you've got others that are almost entirely decentralized in some way. And then there's federated models, you know, every every combination you can possibly imagine, pretty much. So obviously what will work and what will be effective and what's practical in one state may not work in another state, depending on the government's model. What we are tending to find, though, I think there is a I think the data showed this, that um, from a portfolio management perspective, we're seeing greater and greater use of portfolio management solutions as information gathering tools so that the CIO organization can be better informed about what is really happening across all the different IT assets and projects within the state. How they use that information varies a lot depending on the nature of the CIO organization. And in some cases, it is mostly a reporting engine. In others, it helps inform budgeting. In others, there's either a policy or an architecture role for the CIO where they get to be potentially a um, you know a, a de facto um, decision maker or they, they're a gate you know, that they have to go through in order to get anything done. In other areas, they're actually driving the strategy and they're actually leading many of these projects. So how actively the information is used to manage versus just inform and report depends on the organization of the CIO. Yes, and that, I think, ties into the increasing uh, role of the state CIO in uh, agency-level strategy and initiatives and overall visibility. So to Graham's point, that's been one thing that's been lacking for years is the what I call enterprise visibility from the CIO position, regardless of the model, you know, can, then they have visibility into what's going on in all their agencies. And I think, uh, you know, the portfolio management, you know, being able to have a, a PMO function at the CIO organization, assist agencies and, and effectively in their performance of their projects, but then also have visibility for whatever reason. Like you said, in reporting, I think, you know, we we obviously recommend that they have that for capability of making investment decisions, for looking at a, the diversity across that. We, you know, we hear anecdotes of, well, I've got 121 case management systems. Well, you clearly don't need 121 case management systems. You've got to figure out how to kind of rationalize that. So I think the portfolio management gives us a chance to be able to identify that diversity and complexity and then make their business case uh, to appropriators and to budget people and say, you know, we've got we've got a solution for, you know, we've got an enterprise solution for this. We can that, but we, without having that baseline data, uh, without knowing uh, the applications in the agencies, they can't make uh, wise decisions. So I think the states that have pursued that uh, are going to be better off and making better investments uh, in the future. So I think we're going to see that we've got you know, almost uh, 80% of, uh, of the state saying they're using PPM for performance tracking. Uh, but in some cases they're, they're, they're not really closing the loop. There's not a, it's, it's, it's not a, a, a full um, cycle of that. It's just having the information. And now they're going to have to really leverage that to make, make decisions. They may want to leverage it to stop bad things from happening when they see things out there. So again, depends on the depends on the state and the authority that the state CIO has in many cases. 
Although, you know, regardless of authority, what is usually happens is if there is a problem with a big state IT project and there's a legislative oversight committee that wants to talk about it, it's the CIO who ends up sitting in front of them, regardless of how much actual authority they have over the project. That's a common refrain that I think a lot of the my federal listeners will feel the pain of. Uh, when something right. goes well, Congress uh, shakes the program manager's hand and says, great job, and things go bad, they point the finger at the CIO and go, why'd you let the IT fail? So uh, it's, I think there'll be maybe have find a little bit of solace in the fact that they're they're not alone in this this uphill battle. But I did want to go back to something that I think you said, uh, Doug, about data. You know, without that baseline data, you really didn't know what you have and you didn't know where you're going. And I read something in the survey that talked about a comment that someone made that says, you know, we're collecting a lot of data but have a low maturity level in this critical discipline that – and needs to improve. We're going to guide state investments in modern and in, in a modernization strategy. Is is we hear a lot about data in the federal sector? Is the state sector even maybe a half a step or a full step behind the federal from your perspective? Or are they using data in ways to drive decisions? Actually, in the past, uh, we we skipped the data management and data analytics uh, chapter. We usually uh, actually ask those questions. But in the past, I think you could see the the same thing. It is a it, it is a different maturity level across the states. Some are more advanced in their use of those capabilities and are making investment decisions. They they have a very good a handle, for example, on their applications and their uh, and the triage of those applications and where they are in the life cycle and how should invest in other states. Uh, just don't just don't have that. So you're right. It's a it's a mix. I would say I I I not in a position to compare and contrast the federal agencies and the federal sector against the states. But I'd say we've got the same challenge of a mix of maturity levels where some states, you know, have a, a more advanced capacity. Some have, Indiana is a good example where they've uh, created, they have data analytics and data management as a shared service. So it's a, uh, it's a centralized organization with a high degree of funding, a high degree of professional staff, a chief data officer, and they, they service essentially all the state agencies and they, they are highlighted, I think, since they've been, they've been a national award recipient from NASIO several times. That's a good example of the highest level of maturity where they made a decision to invest in that. Other states, you know, as Graham said, they're across that spectrum. They are decentralized and they don't, the state CIO organization may not have that that capability to deliver that. But I, I think it's definitely, it's an emphasis, I can tell you, of National Governors Association uh, working on evidence-based insights and evidence-based decision-making. I think it's something they all aspire to. I think we can talk probably about some trends, though, that are common, um, one of which would be the increasing number of states that have a chief data officer position. And I, I don't know, Doug, do you happen to know what the number is right now? I know it keeps changing. It keeps going on. Yeah, I think it's uh, they just hired one. I think it's 26 now, 25 or 26. Mm-hmm. So half of them. And there are certain I would say, categories of data that are, um, are a real increased area of focus. So one of the topics in the survey is identity and access management, for example. And that's, you know, for obvious reasons during the pandemic, that became, you know, much more important. Um, and the thinking about, you know, what does identity information mean and how do states capture identity information and, you know, this concept of, you know, a golden record or how do you create a citizen identity common across agencies? That's something that's a very hot topic. 
right now because it's been driven by a business need, you know, because you had to get all the services online, you have to deal with bad actors and so on. And so you can see these sort of waves of activity around certain categories of data that are driven by the business needs of the states. Graham, that's actually another great segue to when you talk about business needs, when you talk about digital services, again, the pandemic drove that need home where at one time we could have people come into an office to fill out paperwork. Now, can we get it online? Can we do everything remotely? Can we do everything by mobile device, laptop, et cetera? Again, going back to the beginning of our conversation, the survey shows that workforce skills and capability to deliver and implement digital services was their biggest challenge. But then underneath that, some other interesting uh, results that came out, including lack of organizational agility and flexibility, lack of funding, and then the data question, you know, do you understand the requirements and the complexities? Maybe some reaction about the, that chapter on digital services. And, and again, I'll, I'll go back to what was different, what stood out to you, what really showed that, that, that the state CIOs are, are facing some uphill battles? So uh, I think this is a really interesting um, story in many respects because you've – you're coming out of the – pandemic and sort of starting to go into something that maybe is now sort of a new normal. Um, we've been through a couple of years where I think, at least I was, really impressed with the amount of things that states were able to do on such compressed timescales during the pandemic. You know, and it was it was a shock to some and it was sort of an affirmation for others, right, about the capabilities that were there. But so many services went online almost overnight, you know, and a lot of it was bubblegum and bailing wire, you know, and, and putting things out there. Really good collaboration with the vendor community, who a lot of free services and so on, just to get things stood up because it was a crisis, right? But those things happened and, you know, citizen needs were to a certain extent met. And that was, I think, a success story. And everybody feels you know, justifiably proud of a lot of what was done. And it was almost a mental switch went off about, wow, we can really do things very, very quickly if we're given the, you know, the, the ability to do so. But the other thing that was exposed at the same time was the fragility of a lot of the underlying systems. You know, and unemployment insurance is sort of the poster child, but it's just one, right? And now you're coming out of, a, if you like, the emergency situation and coming into more normal business, but that same demand for a heightened level of online services, you know, not stepping backwards in any way, you're now looking at the, it, it's not an emergency situation anymore. We've got to figure out how to really bolster these legacy systems that were sort of, you know, exposed during the pandemic. And it really becomes more about legacy modernization, but in a context of delivering services online and in a sustainable, you know, um, you know, more long term functional way. And that's the challenge I think that, that states are facing right now to continue to deliver in the way that they've started to, but bolster the back end. So it's actually, you know, it's, it's a strong foundation for the long term. And that's a really that's a really difficult challenge. And I think to to the point uh, about the you know, organizational flexibility uh, and adaptability, a lot of that accrues to the the agencies because they uh, they are tied to these in some cases really archaic business processes. And I think that's the CIO challenge is you know really doing business process redesign for a lot of these agencies and questioning uh, what can be done. And there's some great examples. Uh, coming out, uh, I, I, I talk about uh, Minnesota benefits, men benefits. So 
uh, and many of the other states, that's just one good example where they pivoted from an online benefits application, an entitlement application that used to take over 60 minutes and uh, was 40 some pages. And so even even though you were doing it digitally, you had to create all these things or you had to, again, meet all their, they, they sat down and, and really looked at a, a, a citizen centric view uh, with kind of design thinking uh, and, and really looking at all of that. Uh, with citizen focus and said, what can we do to that? They've now created and have back, uh, you know, back within within a matter of, uh, of of a couple of weeks, had a new product out there that is it can be done mobile. It's about fifteen minutes, and they've eliminated again a lot of that. So I think part of that is is uh, the human centered design piece that you see, and I think that's the kind of flexibility that agencies are going to have to take and say, do we really need to capture all this information? Do we really need to constrain our citizens? Can we build different personas on how this can be done? So I think states are doing it. That's just going to take a long time to overcome some of the uh, institutional challenges and the, uh, you know, there's just general organizational resistance to change on some of these. So it hasn't caught up with the technology capability uh, of, you know, being able to deliver that. And that, that's something that, as Graham said, it's something a pandemic really kind of exposed that they were used to a, an easier consumer-like experience. So we're going to see, and we, so we've seen states, I mean, it's not just, we've seen a number of states adopt all that. We had a whole uh, panel session uh, at our conference where they talked about improving the citizen experience and highlighting what states were doing uh, to uh, improve that. And so I think it's just, you know, more flexibility. Uh, the speed to market has got to change. And, and I think we're seeing a lot of states being able to do that is to bring those solutions to the uh, to the marketplace pretty quickly and use advanced technology and their business partners to uh, to do that. So lots, lots of good stories, I think, coming in this whole in, uh, in this whole area. Doug, I appreciate you bringing up this idea of uh, Minnesota as a good way to take design thinking as a way to change digital services. So, so thank you for uh, uh, that example. Yeah, let me let me give you one other example too, because we highlight. I like to highlight our technology champions, and I and I actually was I moderated this whole session, and uh, I was really impressed. So, uh, New York State was under a legislative requirement to essentially provide their entire ny.gov, so all of their 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 web presence, all of their services, uh, they said, we want all of this being able to be translated in 13 languages, and you got six months to do it. So they were under the gun yeah. under, under, during the pandemic to begin. To, to Graham's point, they, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, agile, it wasn't available to everybody. So it's an accessibility standpoint, and it's a range of services where you're trying to deliver critical services, and yet you're not being able to do that because of language barriers. So uh, I think they're another great story of, of moving that uh, and being able to implement that using artificial intelligence, machine learning language, multiple AI translation engines on the back end and integrating all of that to where, you know, they not only did they move all of those services out into those 13 required languages, but they also uh, made it where they could, if there's a change to a service or a change to a website, that within hours, they've already done the translations and it's back up online. So it's not a, we're going to, we're going to put this in the queue and the help desk and we're going to wait three weeks to get this done. They've got this in kind of an automated uh, DevOps model, which is, uh, which is pretty cool. So it's again, another great story about what states are, that states are doing uh, with, you know, fairly massive 
uh, uh, citizen demand. Again, appreciate the great example. I think when people can see that things are actually changing versus just the, you know us talking about it, I think that's really helpful. Doug Graham, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation. My guests here are Doug Robinson, the executive director of the National Association of State CIOs, and Graham Finley, a partner with GuideHouse. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Doug Robinson, the executive director of the National Association of State CIOs, and Graham Finley, a partner with GuideHouse. Today, we're talking about the annual NASIO survey of state CIOs. I want to go to something you said earlier, which is uh, the role of the CIO has changed quite a bit. One of the things that stood out to me during the survey was this idea of how the CIOs actually see themselves, and and they see themselves a little differently this year. Uh, The the number one thing they said they see themselves as is someone who's who's really leading strategy, number two, communicator, number three, relationship manager. And that was much different than in 2018. Doug, why do you think that the CIOs finally have that, quote, unquote, seat at the table? We were talking before the interview a little bit. You remember the days when – they were worried about the blinking lights, and now they're much worried about many more things than that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's the same the same three uh, attributes, the same three traits that we saw in 18. We do this every four years because of the election cycle, so it's a good time to capture the incumbent CIOs because we're going to, you know, got 36 elections coming up. We had uh, 39 elections in 2018, so we capture that. But if you look at it, it's, it's the it's the same three. It's a forced choice ranking. We give them all of these traits. I think what's interesting is kind of the same three, but you're right. Strategy um, has moved up, and that's probably part of their, as we heard even in the open-ended comments, many of them commenting that they now are perceived as the business leader of IT. They're they're at the table in conversations in many cases, and not, not all, I mean, but in most states, the role uh, of the CIO was elevated because of of what Graham mentioned was their uh, significant and, and really immediate response to the, the impact of the pandemic, the move to remote work and just and to make you know major shifts in terms of, of, of applications in a couple of weeks. So I think that's part of that message that they see they see themselves more of that because of their role in the last couple of years. And again, I think what's interesting is we don't publish the whole list as we did in in eighteen. Uh, you know. N- Technologist was number nine. So people, again, I think the general stereotype is belief of the of the CIO is there are technologists. It was number nine uh, in in 2018. It was number nine again in 2022. So again, totally different cohort of state CIOs. Same 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 uh, perception. And one thing that I find interesting is that if you actually look at the documented role of a CIO, whether it would be sort of in statute or in policy that's hardly changed anywhere. You know, there's a few, you know, broadband in some places and things like that. But for the most part, the CIOs have the have, have the, the same official role that they did four years or eight years ago. How they're perceived or their day-to-day interactions with, say, the governor's office and so on may well have changed. And it's because of the experience during the pandemic where I think everybody knew and paid lip service to the idea that technology is critical you know, and for the delivery of services, both to employee employees of the state as well as citizens. But everybody really felt it, you know, when the pandemic hit and everything had to move online and all of a sudden you couldn't go into the office anymore. So you were relying on the state CIO to be, you know, they were, you know, they were the Department of General Services and the Department of Transportation and the Postal Service all in one because they delivered everything you need. 
in order to be able to do your work. And then they were providing all the citizen services too, or at least the backbone for it. And so it just made it really obvious to people how critical the role is. And then the conversation about how to strategize through the pandemic and on the way out of it, the CIO is part of that conversation in many cases in a way that they weren't previously, but their written job is still the same as it was eight years ago. And again, I think uh, the workforce came up as one of the biggest challenges that a lot of CIOs see themselves. I mean, I think it says in here that it was cited by almost every respondent uh, about their top challenges. And then the typical ones, you know, digital government, funding, sustainment of infrastructure, culture, cybersecurity, and the like. Uh, anything that didn't make it this year, anything that stood out to you in terms of what the CIOs told you, uh, and any comments that stood out to you? Because I think that role, again, as Graham so well put, was is seen so much differently today than it was three, five, seven years ago. I think Graham already mentioned to me the the what was kind of conspicuous by its absence because it also did not make the 2022 state CIO top ten and that's budget funding, you know, resource constraints on the financial side. So uh, that is clearly again an artifact of increased state funding and dramatic levels of federal funding that the states uh, took advantage of. But I think we're going to see a cyclical. I think we'll come that the budget and, and cost control and that was, had, had been part of the state CIO priority top 10 every year until 2022. So I don't think it's gone away. It's just, we have a, a little bit of an outlier right now, and I think it's going to, I think it's going to come back. And uh, so they'll be, they'll be addressing that here in another you know year or so as, as the states kind of get back to reality right now, they're sitting on, you know, record uh, revenues are sitting on records, rainy day surplus areas, but that uh, there's there's always these kind of structural imbalances in the states and the financial side. It'll 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 come back. So I think we will be dealing with uh, with that. But that's the one thing that didn't receive uh, any really comments on that it was more the other types of constraints, particularly around around workforce and around uh, overcoming the structural uh, impediments to change. And you know I think that's a I always tell people that, you know, a huge part of the CIO role is leading change and uh, as opposed to, you know, buying technology. That's something that we're going to have to address in the future. The other piece of this that I just want to touch upon about the survey that I thought was interesting is the idea of shared services. And this is something obviously in the federal world they've been trying to get done for quite a while. When you look at the survey, one of the things they talk about in the survey is this idea of state level agencies sharing their services with the uh, local level agencies, uh, and then and then whether it's stuff like and again going through the survey, uh, you know, voice over IP or digital government portals, portals or, or training, is this this I'm sure is again another pandemic related positive change, but at the same time, something's dropped like cloud services. They fewer of that video teleconferencing dropped quite a bit from forty three percent in twenty twenty to twenty percent in in twenty twenty two. Is it just Again, the pandemic forced the local ser- local folks to to rethink digital services, rethink how they deliver services. So therefore, they probably got their own cloud hosting because they had to. It, was there any trends that stood out to you there? I think it's a, it's a mixed bag in some respects, and because um, you know, Doug had already mentioned, we have a you know the, the cohort of people that we're asking the questions of every year is always a little diff- different. So. It's, usually it's, it, it doesn't pay to get too much into individual percentages because the data moves around a little bit. 
<clears throat> but thematically, I think you're right that the you know the the pandemic certainly encouraged, in some cases, demanded a greater level of integration between local governments and state governments, and IT was one of those areas. You know, and in some cases, in some states, it's actually somewhat easier for a state CIO to, to interact and cooperate with a local government than it is with some of the other state agencies, you know, depending on the circumstances. So I do think we're going to see more of that, that the particular use cases, you know, tend to move up and down over time. But the general trend, uh, I think, is for greater level of integration and almost in some cases, local governments recognizing the scale and the capability that states have it's like a vendor relationship that they can take advantage of in a sense, because they're struggling with their own hiring, even more so than the states in many respects. And I, and I think, Jason, it's important to look at the phrasing of that question to which we've altered it. It's, it's what's being offered. Uh, so what, what services are you offering to, to, to the local governments? Uh, that has been increasing. The offerings have been increasing, but as you can see that, you know, the, in terms of, it, it had some, somewhat of an increase of adoption, so they've seen some greater adoption. And I think to Graham's point, that was probably you know because of the impact of of the pandemic. But the states, you know, for a couple, for you know, there's a variety of reasons. But I think part of that is the states, uh, particularly the state CI organizations, they don't have uh, a directed marketing arm or education outreach or you know a, a communication to the locals about these offerings. They tend to you know, they tend to develop a contract, they they get a state price contract, and they say, okay, we're going to make this available to the locals, but they don't have a dedicated group to go out and market and to communicate that to the locals. They haven't been, some have done that, and and, and some have been very successful in providing those services. Nebraska's a, a good example. They're delivering services, I think, to almost every county, uh, but you know, others, it's just, uh, it's a mixed bag. It's across the board about what they can do. Uh, do they have a relationship with their state CIO organization through uh, some other, you know, county or city municipal league where they've done that? In some cases, they do. In some cases, they have formal uh, relationships with those groups. So it's really a mixed bag across there. I would think given the constraints that locals have, which is, are in terms of cases greater than the, the states, the technical capabilities, the lack of funding, uh, they have the same skill issues, uh, maybe even worse than, uh, than the states do right now in some key areas like cyber that we, I would expect, I'm not going to predict the future, but to, like Graham said, I would expect these to grow. Uh, and part of this may be under the state and local cybersecurity improvement grant, uh, which is, uh, you know, out there, uh, out there now. And uh, uh, the state plans are due next week. And so they, they'll be making those uh, setting up opportunities for grant applications from the locals just in that cyberspace. So we'll see how this uh, we'll see how this grows. But I know many of those locals are struggling to, uh, you know, advance their technology posture as well. Gentlemen, I always enjoy our conversation, and I always love catching up with you, even though it's just uh, 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 only during the survey times that there's plenty more to talk about. But let me thank my guests. Doug Robinson is the executive director of the National Association of State CIOs. Doug, thanks as always uh, for taking the time. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate it. And Graham Finley is a partner with Guidehouse. Graham, always good to catch up as well. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, it was great to be here. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.